Hi, welcome to How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, Emily White. I'm super excited about today's episode, How to Land a Sync Placement with Lauren Ross. I want to set up the episode so you just have a foundation of the basics and some of my thoughts on how to land a sync placement um, as we really dive in on, on Lauren's career and cover how to land a sync placement towards the end of the interview. But I wanted to set that up and also add some additional thoughts um, from her that she sent me after the episode. So first, I wrote an article called How to Land a Sync Placement. Um, also known as song placement and an ad, advert, TV show, film, video game, all that good stuff. I wrote this article for Hypebot in like 2014. And we still get emails, frankly, thanking me for it because I, I try to just lay out the basics. Like the point of the article was definitely not clickbait. It was just, here's the information. So uh, I'm going to go over that. And that's also really the foundation of the second half of chapter five of the book, Music publishing isn't scary or confusing, plus how to land a sync placement. We already went through music publishing not being scary or confusing with uh, Molly Newman uh, from Song Trust in the previous episode. But today we're going to dig in on sync because Song Trust does not pitch you to sync. They just collect on your music publishing, which reminder we went over with Loretta from ASCAP. If you are just signed up for your PRO, ASCAP, BMI in the US, PRS in the UK, SSM in France, you know, look up your country's PRO, um, and you are not collecting on your publishing beyond that, then you are missing out on money. And that can be really confusing um, because you are asked to sign up with a publishing designee or a publisher's share. But um, that's actually not what this episode is about. I just really want to hammer that into your brains because it's often the number one missing revenue stream I see from artists who write their own music. So now we're going to tackle uh, sync placements, which um, has really been all the rage kind of for the past decade, um, which is interesting because kind of, you know, back in the day, let's say any time from the 80s, we'll just say like starting in the 80s um, or using the 80s, 1980s as an example, um, it used to be considered totally selling out um, to have your music in a commercial or a film or, or whatever, um, so much so that Neil Young put out a song and video in 1988 called This Notes For You, which was a play off of um, Budweiser, the, This Bud's For You. But what really shifted that was uh, about a decade later, um, Moby came out with his album Play, and it wasn't getting ironically, played um, on radio and kind of traditional promotional outlets. So they, you know, I don't know if this is the, probably the label, management, Moby, um, made, made the decision to license every single song on that album to, I believe, all commercials. I mean, don't quote me on that, but, but basically to license the song, li- license every song on the album. Um, so that went that album went from being a quote commercial failure to being number one in multiple countries, selling over twelve million copies. And in addition, of course, there's revenue being made on the actual licenses, and it made Moby a total household name, which of course increased his touring numbers, his profile, all that stuff. Um, so that kind of broke the mold into making licensing one's music acceptable, you know, dare I say cool, um, and really, 
you know, cracked it wide open for it to be, I hesitate in saying viable revenue stream. And we'll talk about this later on in the podcast. And I talk about it later in the book. I mean, the the point of the second half of the title of, of this book and podcast is so you aren't missing any revenue that's owed to you, which has been the case with every artist I've ever come into contact with. Um, sync is interesting because it's not guaranteed. And I believe this is something Lauren and I talk, talked about, um, cause I can't always remember what's in my head or what was offline or whatever. I, I I'm quite sure we did. You know, I, I've worked with artists that, you know, didn't necessarily break through career wise, but crushed it on sync. And I've worked with large artists that everybody's heard of that, um, don't land syncs and, you know, Truly great sync people like Lauren know what they can land. So, you know, I sent her a band once and I, you know, again, we'll talk about this in the interview. And she wrote back a few weeks later being like, oh my gosh, so sorry for the delay. I can crush it on this. Like, oh my gosh, I have so many ideas. Like I know so many supervisors that'll love it. And it, and again, it's a band that, um, you know, not, not everybody has heard of, but then I'm not saying everybody's heard of the Dresden Dolls, but I came up working with the Dresden Dolls uh, who I met in college and they are definitely a, you know, internationally touring uh, known artists. And I remember their sync company, which was um, very hip and and respected saying to me, like music supervisors love them. You know, they want to be on the guest list. They're, they're fans, but the music stands out too much to be synced. And again, sync is short for synchronization, um, which is synchronizing your music with picture. Um, so don't be offended, you know, if, if your music doesn't work for sync. Um, but either way, I want to share best practices on how to put yourself in uh, the best position to land sync. So that's that's what I'm going to open this episode today. Uh, Lauren and I chat for quite a while, so maybe I'll break this into two episodes, maybe not. But I know this is an important topic uh, for all of us. So, you know, let's just get going. I consider there to be kind of three different, can never think of the right word, like tiers, I guess, um, to land a sync placement. And I talk about this in the book, but there are music retitling companies, and I'll explain what that is in a second, like music dealers, jingle punks. There's a ton of sync pitching companies out there that will take anyone on. And believe it or not, I'm not opposed to working with these companies in earlier days. I say that because, you know, my music publisher friends understandably will freak out um, because I mentioned these are music retitling companies and they often retitle the work so they can get a cut of your um, PRO royalties as well. Um, The most important thing is, you know, making sure you can get out of this agreement very quickly. And with most of these companies, you can, um, obviously read, read your contracts, read the fine print. Um, they often take a huge commission, like 50%, but we all have to start somewhere. And I took on a new band years ago and I signed them up, uh, with music dealers. And like we we've talked about, you know, it's really important to find humans, uh, at these companies and really make sure you're building relationships there. Um, so music dealers landed a $15,000 placement for the band, um, with a major, um, over the counter drug company that everyone's heard of. And, you know, in theory, that actually sounds great because this band like literally started like a week prior. Um, 
So great, 15 grand. But again, 50% of that goes to music dealers. I was taking a 15% commission as a manager. It's a band, you know, so it gets whittled down pretty quickly. But um, that commercial aired during the World Series on a major network in primetime. So their PRO royalties um, shot up to six figures. This was in the iTunes era, um, and iTunes sales went through the roof, and the band owned their master uh, recording. So they got all the revenue on that. And then I was able to get out of the agreement very quickly, as I mentioned, you know, read those agreements, make sure you can get, get out you know, within 30 or 90 days or something reasonable. Um, and then I was able to get them a lucrative publishing deal. And that cash, you know, supported their touring, their promotion, their personal livelihoods. And I, I know that's a, still a huge income stream for them. So you got to start somewhere. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm really op- open to, you know, working with those, um, dare I say, music retitling companies in early days. Um, now, one mistake I made as a young manager, which I reference in my conversation with Lauren that follows this is a lot of these music retitling companies are non-exclusive. And so it's, I, I think it's really natural to be like, sweet, like the more the merrier, right? Like increase your odds of landing placements, but the music industry is small. uh, The sync community is smaller and the music supervisor community is even smaller and so what happened is I, I had a band um, up for like a 30 grand um, trailer. I think it was like a Vince Vaughn film or something. And the music supervisor couldn't figure out who pitched it first. And they were like, bye. And we lost the placement. So almost everyone is going to want to be one-stop shopping. And just to review, there's two rights, essentially, in any sort of music. There's the master recording side, and then there's the songwriting or publishing side. So sing placements are always 50-50, 50% to the recording, 50% to the, the songwriting side. And because of that, companies often want uh, to represent both sides, which makes complete sense. Then they're not chasing down you know, multiple people to get approval when a lot of times these TV shows, commercials, all that stuff is on deadline and really has to get it done. Um, at this point in my career, you know, folks know that I respond to things quickly. Um, we have a policy of responding to everything within 24 business hours. That's a conversation for another day. For some people, that's too slow. Um, but, but folks, you know, that I have professional relationships with know that I'm always going to respond to them. So in my ideal world, I love it when there's, you know, one sync pitching company or label or whatever pitching the artists on the master recording side and then uh, one uh, sync pitching company or publisher um, pitching on the publishing side. Um, Again, I'm in a unique position where I've been able to do that because they know they're going to get a response. Um, Most folks are going to want you to do, uh, quote, one stop and represent both sides. And I totally get that. It makes everyone's lives easier. But my point in mentioning this is like, don't sign up for 10 non-exclusive sync companies because trust me, from experience, you're screwing yourself in the end when you do land that placement. No music supervisor has the time or patience for that confusion. So I did want to comment on exclusivity as far as the um, music retitling companies go. Um, the next, again, like level feels like the wrong word because it's it's just what is the right fit for you. 
Um, but kind of the next tier are selective pitch companies. Um, and that's like Terrorbird, where um, you'll hear Lauren founded the licensing division, um, Lip Sync, Music Alternatives, Zinc, Bank Robber. Um, all these companies on the sync pitching side, roughly, because um, again, things change all the time. Well, what I'm trying to say is they don't generally take ownership and they just take a percentage on the placement they land. So we talked about the music um, titling companies taking 50%. Most of these companies are going to be in the 25 to 30% um, that that they're going to take. You're going to keep the remainder. And all of these companies are super selective. Um, You know, you can send them your music for sure, but um, nothing is guaranteed. And frankly, I have really great relationships with all of these companies and I've had them reject plenty of artists. So don't be offended if that happens. Again, they're listening for what they know they can place. And that's a very unique um, set of ears and A&R skills. I actually referenced Lauren at the beginning of the book, now that I think about it, because um, like I said, she really has that ears for sync and knows what she can place and, and knows what she can't. So that's kind of the second tier. And then, of course, there's publishing companies where you can do an administrative publishing deal where you retain the rights and you usually keep, give or take, you know, 80, 85 percent. Um, and the publisher, you know, collects 15, 20 percent. And again, you own the rights. And then there's co-publishing deals um, where it's often a 50-50 split between you and the publisher. And sometimes they um, own a portion of your copyright. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We've talked about this. Do not sign a co-publishing deal unless there's an advance. And really, it should be a significant advance. Um, I think I talked about... I was about to say his name. I don't think you'd care, but I, I, um, I think I talked about a musician friend who sent me a publishing agreement. He was sent, you know, he wanted to hire me to consult, to, to look at it. And it was, um, a two grand co-publishing deal. And for like 20 years of his copyright, I'm like, dude, you could go work at Starbucks and make $2,000 if you need it. Um, and so when I explained to him the differences between co-pub and admin and how much, you know, the company would be benefiting in a co-pub deal, you know, what's two grand divided by 20 years? Like, that's crazy. Um, so he ended up getting, he ended up getting the advance up to 7,500. I would have liked to see more like 10 or 15, but, um, he's happy. So I'm happy. Um, yeah. And then, so obviously publishing companies pitch you for sync as well. Traditionally, that's like, I mean, publishing companies also do co-writes and of course collect, you know, on your publishing, but traditionally like sync is very associated with publishing companies, but as it's exploded over the past 20 years or so, uh, you know, labels and, and distributors almost all have, you know, sync folks working them as well. So, um, once you are working with a sync company, um, again, it's amazing if you can find a human there, um, music dealers was founded in Chicago and, you know, so not all of these companies are in New York or LA or whatever, um, in non-pandemic times, which, uh, is, is happening with all the vaccines, which is exciting. 
um, you know, you could offer to play their office. You could offer to do a webcast, private webcast concert to their office, you know, to their office for a lunch break or something. I just thought of that now. Um, but either way, you know, once you find a human there, whether you meet them in person or not, you want to mindfully and respectfully keep them in the loop on what you're doing. And that's something we will talk about throughout the, the podcast that I talk about throughout the book. So you want to send, you know, your point of contact at the sync pitching company or publisher or whatever, um, your latest and greatest highlights on a Monday or Tuesday, like, you know, roughly once a month. So like not every day, not on weekends, not on holidays, um, but just sharing with them, like, here are my shows coming up, my webcast coming up. Let me know if you or anyone on your team would like guest lists, um, any music supervisors would like guest lists or webcasts, you know, quote, guest list codes, you know, here's press I've been getting. Um, and that helps you to respectfully stay in your sync pitching person's face. And that also arms them to share all that great news with the music supervisors they're pitching on your behalf. Um, The other thing you want to do is always have instrumentals created whenever possible. Um, And you'll hear Lauren uh, in the interview emphasize the importance of getting those mastered as well. Um, Getting instrumentals is an industry standard, but I constantly uh, have to remind producers to deliver them. So just make sure you ask for that up front so you have everything together. Um, you also need clean versions of your songs um, in case that's necessary for, for the songs that have lyrics. And again, Lauren will explain this. Most people know this. The instrumentals, you know, obviously tons of synced music is background music or when dialogue's happening. So um, don't quote me on this, but I would say at least 50% of sync placements are instrumental, if not more. So that's why those are literally really, really valuable. Um, have your lyrics all typed up in a uh, PDF. So um, your sync pitching person and the music supervisor has that. And then most sync companies have an asset delivery system or we'll send you a form or a spreadsheet or something. But essentially, you're going to want um, you're going to want high quality files um, in link form of both your mastered instrumentals and, and your recordings with music. Um, send Spotify links as well, because that's easy for folks to check out. And again, like these should all be links. They should be non-expiring links also. Um, so links to get, like I said, the mastered instrumentals, master songs, Spotify links to the release songs, if, if it's out yet, because um, if it's not, that's cool too, which we'll talk about. Um lyrics and uh yeah and then like i said just mindfully keeping your uh sync person in the loop on your latest and greatest highlights the other thing to keep in mind which we covered in the business affairs episode is if you do have any co-writes you want to make sure that that co-write that co-writer has pre-cleared their share for sync and that way um your your publisher your sync pitching person you know, who's ever pitching you for sync has, is armed and ready for that information. Cause you don't want, um, I'm not saying don't co-write, but you don't, that can be a turnoff to music supervisors and even sync people like, um, I have to go get all these people's permission on the placement. So just have everything pre-cleared when it comes to co-writers. And I've honestly never had a co-writer say no to that. Cause that frees them up to go fishing, go on yoga retreat or whatever, and not miss a placement. Um, because they're off devices or something. So that's really important. And also um, do not submit any music for sync that you have samples of or that you have samples on. 
um, because you don't own the rights to that and you don't want to make it really far down the line and then have a frustrated music supervisor when they realize, you know, actually you were using a sample. So those are my basics on how to land a sync placement. Um, I talked to Lauren Ross for quite a while, <laughs> as you'll hear, and she sent me a very long email afterward, um, that I want to share with you all, um, with some additional thoughts. So this should make sense in context because I gave you the basics. Um, and then, uh, I'll give you this information from Lauren and then you'll hear Lauren's interview. So I promise this will all make sense. But Lauren wanted me to add that one of the biggest advantages to working with a sync rep is that they're hearing about projects and musical needs before that information is publicly available. And so what she's saying here is an artist may watch the premiere of a new series and think, my music would be so great for this show and look up who the music supervisor is and reach out. But by then the whole season may have already uh, been completely wrapped for several months. And season two might take place in a different time or place and therefore needs a completely different style of music. If you have an awesome sync rep who's hearing about everything while and even before it's in production, your music could have a shot at making it. That's a really good point. And that's interesting from my perspective um, as someone who's off, often approving these things. Always, you know, I go to the artists and get their approval, but it often uh, has gotten sent to me as the manager over the years. And it's amazing. Like I was, I was searching for something in my email and I was like, Oh, one of our artists was up for a song in Ladybird. Like, that's so cool. But when you get that sync request and the same thing just happened to me with a, a placement, Julia Nunes landed, we got a sync request through, um, music alternatives, uh, reps her and, and they do a fantastic job. Um, it just said for a show called Ginny in Georgia, it didn't say Netflix or anything like that. We approved it on like you know, July 5th, the day after the U.S. Independence Day. So I think we were just in like vacation mode. And then it was on that show and it ended up being like the number one show on Netflix. And, you know, Julia's numbers and everything just went through the roof. <laughs> she was like, I don't remember approving this. And I was like, I don't either. I mean, we checked. Of course she approved it, you know, and I'd approved it also. But like I said, it, it was like weird holiday day or whatever. So yeah, Lauren makes a really good point here. Um, I mean, most sync people, like, that's their job is to have relationships with music supervisors to know this stuff. But don't feel bad if you're watching a show and you're like, oh, my gosh, my music would be perfect for this. And then you reach out and, and like Lauren said, the, you know, that season is wrapped. There are working on a new season and it's, it's, it's very different. So Lauren also wanted me to add that um, some good ways to find which sync reps you want to reach out to include looking up who reps some of your favorite artists and labels. Um, ask your artist friends who their sync reps are um, or who their publisher is and what their experience has been like. She adds, don't be annoying, but also don't give up. Uh, give companies some time to check your music out. No news is not always bad news. People truly may just not have gotten a chance to listen. It could easily take a month to hear back. And again, I I, I talked about that, um, you know, in this part and with Lauren with when I sent her a band and I, you'll hear, I've known her a super long time and it took her weeks to get back to me. And I totally understood because she's super busy, but when she did, she was like, Oh my gosh, you know, this is so amazing. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, everyone in the industry, everyone in the modern world is super busy all the time, but, um, sync people really are because their job is to be, you know, interfacing with music supervisors, staying on top of this stuff, often, you know, whining and dining music supervisors, um, going to shows, stuff like that. So they're really busy. Um, and it's amazing. Like the, the best thing people I work with, like, I don't always hear for them. 
hear from them. But when I do, it's amazing information, you know, like here's 30 pitches we've made on this artist or, you know, Scott Cresto at Music Alternatives, like always shows up (laughs) at South by Southwest when there's like a million showcases and a million things going on. He always has a music supervisor in tow. So um, yeah, I, I really like Lauren's point. You know, no news is not necessarily bad news and, and just respectfully and mindfully, you know, check in once a month or so until you find that the right sync um, pitching person for you. Um, Lauren also wanted me to add some companies will, will only be interested if you have new music, others, which like that, I know that, you know, that's why like if you can send, you know, unreleased material to your sync pitching person. Um, I usually do that in a private SoundCloud link. Do not send attachments. Lauren feels like that artists are getting, well, people are getting away from sending attachments. I don't think they are. I, I still feel like people send massive attachments. So yeah. So she, so she said some companies will only be interested if you have new music, but others are just as happy to hear catalog releases. Um, you know, she says for the music that she represents, we'll consider music released in the 70s or 2000s as much as uh, music that's coming out next year. And, and you'll hear Lauren has had um, just amazing success working with like Elliot Smith's catalog. And so, yeah, so of course they they want new music. I, I would say that's the priority, but, you know, send send your catalog too. That's for sure. And Lauren also added, please don't try to make sync music. I mean, that kind of goes along with chapter one, getting your art together. Um, she, she says it'll sound fake and forced. No one wants, <laughs> no one wants to put a fake ass song in their project and no one wants to rep fake ass music, make your art. That being said, she does think it's okay to keep sync in mind when making your music. And what she means by that is if you don't need to include a sample in your song, don't. If your lyric doesn't need to include the full name of a historical figure in it, don't. If the song does need the sample or does need the hyper-specific lyric, don't censor your art. Just know that the, that, that that specific song probably won't get synced, and that's okay, too. And, you know, what we're talking about there is just, you know, create the art, you know, from your heart, from your soul. That's what's going to connect with people. And you'll hear, like, uh, you know, Lauren does get requests for experimental noise rock. I'm just laughing because that's, like, you know, the genre I, I, I mentioned or whatever when we were talking about this. Um, but like I said, there's plenty of artists with huge careers that don't land syncs at all. So just, you know, I'm, I'm covering this topic because I would be remiss not to, but, uh, don't be offended if your music doesn't get synced. It happens to, to tons of people. But like I said, we're, the whole point of this episode is to, um, put you in the best position to land sync placements, which is a very competitive part of the industry, uh, which I don't know. I mean... I guess Neil Young would have believed you in 1988 because that's why he wrote and put out that song and video. So Lauren also added, uh, she said one of her personal favorite two-part gauges for testing the strength of a composition and the strength of a recording, which again, she's talking about likelihood of landing sinks. I, you know, I, I think she would agree with me. Don't go changing what you're doing just to land sinks. But um, this is a good lit- litmus test. One, can the song stand on its own with just vocal and piano? And two, can the instrumental version stand on its own without the vocals, at least without the lyrics? A song doesn't have to pass this test in order to be great, but if it does pass it, it probably is great. So that's interesting. And she wanted me to highlight that having your contact info 
on your PRO's websites is super important because that's uh, where music supervisors often go to find you. And I've been preaching the importance of Song Trust. Uh, and as mentioned, Song Trust uh, does pu- does publishing, you know, songwriting collection and administration for you, but they do not pitch to sync. And Lauren said one thing that's happening is so many artists are signing up for Song Trust that when the music supervisor goes into their in, into a songwriter's PRO to try to figure out who to contact because they want to get the song, it might just say Song Trust, which they administer thousands and thousands of songwriters. So um, you want to make sure that your contact info is associated with your PRO on their website so music su- supervisors can find you when uh, they're looking for you. And finally, um, I definitely want to add that Lauren's music, La Luma, um, can be heard on Spotify. I'm sure other streaming services, but she mentioned Spotify in the email because um, you'll hear her say that she's not a social media person, um, but she is beginning to work on new material. Um, and I, I didn't get a chance to add in the conversation. I I feel like a bad friend because I actually didn't even know Lauren was a musician. I guess I did know. She, I knew the competitive flute player part that you'll hear about. But anyway, um, her career is amazing. She's amazing. Definitely one of the best sync people I've ever met. One of my favorite humans. So enjoy my conversation uh, with sync person, music supervisor, and all around great human, Lauren Ross. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 10 of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, Emily White. Today, we are going to talk about, um, I should look up what chapter it is, um, but I know the episode number and it's episode 10, How to Land a Sync Placement. And I'm so thrilled to have my old friend, Lauren Ross, as our guest today. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you, Emily. Yes, Absolutely. Um, so let's start at the beginning of your career. Um, I mean, you can start prior to this, but when we were chatting before, I didn't realize that you lived in France. Um, so, you know, tell us how you started. I mean, obviously you love music, you're a musician, all that good stuff, but, um, get us to college. Cause that's, that's when I met you. Okay, sure. Yeah. I mean, before college, I was just a major classical music nerd. Um, I started playing the flute uh, just before sixth grade and it just became like it felt like a native language to me the moment I started playing it and I just became so like I in some ways that like other people are like horse girls which actually I kind of was too I was definitely <laughs> like a flute girl and I was like I refer to myself as a former competitive flute player Amazing. Um, and yeah I was like all up in the Virginia flute fairs and playing in city band and district band and piccolo in the marching band but then I also loved other instruments a ton too I played sax in the jazz band and I played guitar in a garage band with my friends and all of that love of different instruments then led me to uh, first I was at the University of Miami in Florida and then I ended up transferring to Berkeley College of Music in Boston Um, for me that was the right choice because I was at a point in my life when I was ready to be um just surrounded by music. When I was at University of Miami, I chose them because they had a really amazing music department, but they also had this really strong international population, which was important to me. And, you know, other academics, which at the time I was interested in things beyond just music. And then I was like, "Ah, actually, I really just want to be around musicians right now. And so went up to Berkeley and that was a great decision for me. I loved being there and my time there and everything I got to learn um, both in and out of school during that era. 
Amazing. And for the nerds who are paying attention, we are covering chapter five today who are following along in the book. So I did uh, look that up. Um, so when were you in France? I, I totally didn't know that about you. Oh, yeah. So my biggest loves, like especially like in high school, middle school and high school, was my loves were of music and language. I felt like they went together really well. And I did, I was determined to learn to speak French. I, I spent a summer at the Virginia has these things called the Governor's Academy. And I went to the Virginia Governor's Academy for French. And then was like, you know what, the only way I'm going to actually learn to speak French is if I go live there. And so I convinced my high school to let me graduate early. I ended up taking like night school government classes. I took summer school PE. I took um, a local, I took English class at a local university, Christopher Newport University, just so that I could cram through all my requirements so that I could graduate early and then go live in France. I found a host family and was uh, attending a high school there. The only class that had an opening was the 11th grade economy uh, track, which was very disappointing for me. I would like wistfully look out the window on the uh, city bus in Marseille as we would drive past the like, essentially the equivalent of like the arts and music magnet school. Yeah. Like I would pass it every day on my way to like the like math and economy magnet school that oh I was God. attending. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I even was playing there. Like I, I still maintained private flute lessons every week while I was there. I got to take, um, in addition to like getting to take the back, I can't remember what it was called, but there was like a, a national music exam that I got to be a part of and take there. And, and so that was really cool to get to learn. Um, like I learned solfege in French and like, you know, learned that fixed dough situation, which anyone who knows what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And so like, I, I got to learn some, you know, I guess some uh, chefs learn like French technique. And in some ways I got to learn a lot of French music education in that way by living in France, even for that time. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I like something that they had in their system was you had to sing as part of this national exam. And the piece that, that we were required to sing was, um, was a piece, it was an aria that the character Cherubino sings from Marriage of Figaro. And wow. as a, queer woman, I was especially excited by that because Cherubino is a male character played by a woman. And so I love that it was like kind of this womanizing character played by a woman cross-dressing as a man. And I was getting to sing um, the song that she sings, or excuse me, th that he sings in the opera um, as part of a French music exam. And I was just like, this is the life. Like I'm <laughs> loving everything about this right now. I felt so in my element. And then actually going to Berkeley was kind of a shock to the system because I was so not a jazz person. Mm. And like I had a really good ear and I was actually placed into the highest level of ear training, but I was placed into the lowest level of what was referred to as harmony class. Mm. And because right. my ear could hear all these things, but I didn't know what to call any of it. And I was so like aghast by some of these jazz chords that were going on around me. I was just like, I don't know what to call that. And why would anyone be playing it anyway? Like, why are you doing this? Amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. So Berkeley was an amazing education for me breaking out of um, just that classical 
realm and getting to know other kinds of musics. And that's also, you know, that was also me being a college age person and then also getting into like Slater Kenny and other like queer punk rock mm-hmm. stuff. And then discovering these loves of more experimental modern musics, again, going outside of just the classical realm and getting really into bands like Deerhoof, Shoo Shoo, these bands that were doing something different, Hella. And it turned out a lot of those artists that I was really loving were on this label called Kill Rock Stars and their weirdo sister label, 5RC. And I don't know if I'm getting too ahead of... No, it's all good. Is this good? Okay, cool. So yeah, so I ended up getting an internship with Kill Rock Stars and 5RC and I just felt like I found my people. And it's not even that like I had a specific interest in working at a label or being at a label. I just knew that like whoever the weirdos are who are putting out this collection of music, I want to know them. Like yeah. I want to hang out with them and like learn how they're thinking and what they're doing. Um, and I kind of feel like that's exemplified a little bit of how I've approached my career in music in general, like I've certainly been interested in different aspects of the industry or types of music and everything. But the thing that really propels me and draws me forward in the different directions that I've gone have been really the people, like who have I wanted to be around? And that's how, you know, then also at Berkeley, I began working with Annie Clark, AKA St. Vincent was because I was so drawn to her as a person and to the music that she was making And I ended up becoming her manager for several years. And that's not because I was actually trying to be an artist manager. It's because I adored her and loved working with her. Like it just, we became like, I the same thing that I would say about Kill Rock Stars, especially Kill Rock Stars is President Slim Moon and Annie Clark is that I felt like I started working with them the day I met them. Right. It just made sense. Like it just clicked. And it just felt right. It felt right. Um, learning whatever it was that I, like, I knew that I supported what they were doing and I wanted to be as useful a member of their teams as possible. So in Annie's case, I was her manager in those early years for kill rock stars. I was executive assistant to slim moon for a while. And then he is the one who introduced me to the field of sync licensing and eventually, then I started the in-house sync licensing department there at Terrorbird and excuse me, at Kill Rock Stars. And then that took off and I fell in love with it and then ended up joining Terrorbird a few years later, starting their sync licensing department. Isn't so, that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, just so, I mean, none of these things were planned. None right. of them were intentional. None of them were the goal none of them were even things that I had heard of prior to being introduced to them specifically. Like I did not know about artist management until I started Mm -hmm. St. Vincent. I did not know anything about record labels until I started interning and then later working at Kill Rockstars. I didn't know anything about sync licensing until Slim Moon said, Hey, do you want to do sync licensing? And I said, yes. What's that? (laughs) You know, you know, you're, for me, it's like, okay, I'm drawn to these people and these ideas. And mm-hmm. then I'm going to, I know that I want to work with these people and I will then figure out what that looks like as I go. Um, Isn't it amazing? I mean, it's weird. Cause I remember 
when these, a lot of these things happen to you, but it's, isn't it weird that Kill Rockstars didn't have like a sync licensing person? Well, at the time they did have a third party company repping them, which is funny because that's what they have now, which is Terrorbird. (laughs) But yeah, they had another company repping their catalog. I mean, that was still in the very early days of that stuff. There were very few companies who, um, who repped independent labels independently in that way, specifically for um, sync licensing. And I I think even at the time, like people didn't really even just call it sync licensing. They called it um, like film and TV placement. And then like that kind of broadened out as then it was like, well, actually this covers more than just literal film and TV. But I remember even like my first business cards at Kill Rockstars, I mean, I'm sure I had one that said executive assistant, um, but then like the one that I had after that, it didn't say sync licensing or licensing person or whatever. It said film and TV or film and TV licensing or something. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, that's, that seems just so narrow now <laughs> thinking about totally. it. But that's how it was, right? Yeah. And you're not going to say to, you know, artists on Kill Rockstars, like, we're going to get you in every commercial ever, you know? So it's like, there's a reason it said that. And it's so funny because, like, I was at this super punk rock place where, like, a lot of artists didn't want to be involved in a lot of things. And so from very early on, I approached sync licensing with this attitude of not just looking for opportunities, but also looking to protect my artists making sure yeah. that their music wasn't used somewhere that they didn't want it to be. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, Eric Johnson, who was at Wyden Kennedy at the time in Portland, an ad agency, um, he became one of my early, you know, I use the word mentor, but what I really mean is like, I talked to him on the phone once and that right. counts mentorship because I talked to so few people at that time who were in the sync licensing world that the few people who I was able to like, actually get on the phone with at the time who knew who I was I mean the few words that they said to me were the most important words of the beginning of my career so same with like Carrie Druton from NBC um you know she was a riot girl drummer in a a punk band and so like she knew who I was because she knew who Kill Rockstars was and so she was down to talk to me and I was able to do a lot of work with NBC who I'm still incredibly tight with and I love their whole crew and that all stemmed from the fact that you know Carrie and I could nerd out about Bikini Kill and Slater Kinney (laughs) and then it all blossomed from there a hundred percent um yeah I mean you're touching on so many things just like the industry I mean for me too the industry is all about relationships and like genuine relationships and like for me that was always like bonding about and like geeking out on music and um yeah and then what you said about mentors too I mean your example was more specific because not a lot of people were doing that but this is not the interning 101 podcast but I do like to remind people that mentors don't always come in the form that we want them to or think that they will so that's amazing that you you know gleaned that knowledge just from a few words or one conversation. I love that. Oh, I, I remember specifically the most important thing that I took from my conversation, like that specific phone call with Eric Johnson, like, because he was in Portland and I was in Olympia, Washington, like there was this like same musical scene that yeah. we were in, even though he was in like, you know, the corporate world being at a, a massive agency. But I remember the uh, one specific thing that he said to me 
when thinking about what music is going to go into a spot is to ask yourself, what do you want the audience to feel? And that has always stuck with me as, you know, cause like music supervisors send searches and like they're using their own language and they're all sending, um, you know, their different ways of conveying what their scene or project needs. And something that I've always kept in the back of my mind is like, how should the audience feel when they hear this music playing? I love it. And that is why you are one of the best sync people I've ever worked with, even though I know you're doing many other things now. Aw, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that something that was of huge benefit to me, even though it was it made the beginning of my career admittedly very challenging, I'm so glad that I didn't um, start out at a different sync place or publishing Plays or, or for that matter, a label that had an established in-house sync licensing department. Yeah. I had to figure out everything from scratch. I had to meet everyone from scratch. And that did lead to genuine relationships. That did lead, lead to me learning certain things the hard way. And like, you know, mistakes are the greatest teachers in the world. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, there's certain things where it's like, well, I now know to never do that again. Um, as opposed to just having never done it in the first place and not knowing why. Um, you know, I'm so glad that I that I got to approach this industry in the way that I did. And I think that it helps led me and ultimately Terrorbird to having um, our own approach to sync licensing and our own priorities and philosophies around it. I think that one of the biggest things um, in particular, perhaps because I was at an independent label like Kill Rockstars, not like at a major label, I never had anyone telling me like, here are the singles, here are the priorities, try to go get these songs placed. It always was about collaborating with the people on the other side. I always consider, I still consider that I have like two sets of clients. There's like, you know, my actual clients or the artists and labels that we rep. And then there's the music supervisors, the ad agencies, the production companies, the films, like they're equally our clients in a lot of ways. And so it's like, cool, how do I, um, how do I fulfill both of their needs? And music supervisors do not need to be pitched on like, here's our priority. Here's the single, like push this thing. Like no one wants to hear that. And the fact that from the beginning, I never, had that approach, um, it it wouldn't have even occurred to me. Everything was always based on like art meets art. So it's like, cool, I've got this catalog of music. You're working on this, like which is its own art projects. And mm-hmm. then like you are working on your art projects, some sort of film or TV show or whatever it may be. How can this, like, how can I like fill this need within your art with a piece of art that I'm representing? And like, we make that scene or that spot or whatever it is as strong as possible. So it was always about the need of the project rather than my need as a sync licensing rep. And that's super important for people to understand. I mean, really in any sort of partnership in the music industry and probably life, uh, or I mean like business life, like, um, because, you know, it's not about fighting to the death and getting as much money as possible. Obviously, it's your job to get as much money as possible. But I mean, we keep talking about relationships, you know, like these are your people, you know. So I, again, I think that's one of many reasons why you've been so successful in this in this area. Thanks. And, you know, what you just said about like these are your people. I mean, most of the 
most of the people who I was in touch with in the first, let's just probably say like in the first year of me doing sync licensing, most of those people still work in sync licensing. Most of those music supervisors are still music supervisors. Some of them maybe are now on the rep side, but they're still involved in this industry. Like they're still my contacts. Of course, Mm -hmm. there've been new people who have come up. I mean, this industry has like this segment of the industry has broadened and has grown exponentially over the years. Um, But those early players, they're still there. Yeah. So yeah, like I definitely recommend always having a long-term vision to things. Like you're, you're not just trying to make a connection to make one thing happen. You're meeting people who you're going to be working with for years and years. 100%. I ha- that would be such a good segue into one of my questions, but I do want to ask, how did you uh, first connect with uh, Annie Clark? Oh, well, we were in school together. Um, you know, we were both at Berkeley College of Music, and I remember there was, oh, I can't recall the name of the performance. It was some sort of um, talent show is not the right word for it because it was Berkeley, but there was, you know, I'll call it a concert. There was a concert. Um, yeah. That was happening in the BPA. Ber- Wait, is that what it was called? B- Sorry, it's been a while since I remember the name of Berkeley Performance Center. Center. Is it? Yes, Center? Berkeley Performance Center. Yes. So there was um, there was a show going on that like certain people within the school were performing at, and she was one of those performers. And the moment she started playing, like the room was just dead silent. Cool. And it was just so evident that like whatever you're doing right now is so special. Like there's something so unique and captivating about you and what you're playing and how you're playing it. And I mean, we were all such music nerds that like she could go off being the amazing guitarist that she was, the amazing composer musician that she was. And we were there for it. Like we were following how incredible what she was doing was. And mm-hmm. then the fact that she had this incredible performance element to it, even if her playing just a three minute song, you could see that instantly. And I remember like when she finished that like everyone just lost their shit. And yeah. like I, there was then some sort of party happening afterwards at someone's house and I found her and I was just like, I want to help you. I want to work with you. I love what you're doing. And, and she was just like, oh my God, like, I love it. Like I, you know, loved the spirit that I immediately had. And we met up the next day and we just started going like right away. Um, whether that was booking shows or doing press stuff for the shows that she had already figured out like we <laughs> I remember using the like there's like a corner store near Berkeley that had a uh, a copy machine in the back and I used that copy machine to make all of our old school like press releases and stuff I mean I was and of course I wasn't even approaching it from like the same uh probably professional way of like 
neatly cutting this thing out and placing it perfectly and trying to make it look as good as possible because I had also just finished my internship at Kill Rockstars. And so I was coming with this amazing blend of like, okay, I know that it needs to have some quotes and stuff on it, but also <laughs> I want it to have lots of personality. So like it looks somewhere between a like, like a press clipping sheet and like a ransom letter. <laughs> like it was really very, um, very punk rock and very, uh, yeah, uh, fucked up and photocopied as Brian Ray Turcott would say. And uh, yeah, it, it was great. So both from like getting local press, like from the Boston Globe to come out or getting shows at like TT the Bears and stuff mm -hmm. like that, like, it, it started it started that small and then like booking an East coast tour. And I remember the biggest like get that we got was getting to be first of three opening for Shushu at the old knitting factory at 74 Leonard street. I will still always remember the actual street address. And it was like the biggest win. It was like such a huge thing. And then we yeah. also played house shows on that tour. We played some house in Roanoke. We played, um, a top surgery benefit show in Philly. Like there was this just total range of shows. And that's something that's so fun about being an artist at that level or working with an artist at that level is like, you're not necessarily playing the most normal shows. Like it's not yeah. super standard. And there's something so magical about that. And of course things then grew, then it's like, okay, now we're at South by and now we're working with beggars and the first album has come out and like there's a real booking agent involved and there's like a European tour is going on. And, you know, she had uh, then been playing with Sufjan and, oh my God, shame on me for blanking on the name. <laughs> That's a long time ago. I feel you. Oh my God. Shit. It'll come to you. Polyphonic spree. Okay, it came there back. Actually, I'm kind of surprised you couldn't think of that. You probably could picture all 30 of them or whatever. But. You know, I was like thinking like hypercolor magic. I, I was like, it's some sort of like colorful adjective noun. <laughs> um, yeah, but working with her was so fun. And yeah. we just spoke the same language, you know? Like, I think it really helped that like we were both, queer women, super nerdy ass, hardcore musicians who like, we wanted, we wanted her music heard and we wanted her to be in front of people. And we knew that as soon as she was, she would win them over, whether it was mm -hmm. like playing in stores at other music, or then she was doing this tour opening for Midlake. And I still remember the feeling um, being at Bowery Ballroom in that, in that, um, on that tour, um, you know, we had gone up from the Southeast and then we were coming up North and that Bowery show was such a big one because it was, I think at that point, probably one of the largest venues that she had played and no one in the audience knew who she was. But again, just like that very first time at the Berkeley Performance Center, the instant she started playing, the room went, si went silent. I love it. And, you know, just like, I remember then being up in the balcony and looking down at the audience just be like, oh, everyone's like here. Everyone is listening. And also thank God it was before like, you know, everyone, you know, everyone in the audience had a flip phone at best yeah. at that time. So like no one was filming it. Like no one was texting mm -hmm. their friends. Everyone was just paying attention 
and you know, I, thankfully the technology was uh, as low as it was at the time that that was easy to do. And also she was as commanding a performer and musician as that, that she didn't need anything more than a microphone and guitar to totally have your full and undivided attention. And she blew everyone's minds and everything continued to expand and grow from there as well it should have. I love it. And I mean, I knew we had kind of similar stories, but I'm just like, our stories are very parallel. And I'm completely taken back to that time hearing you talk about it. It was I mean, we were the perfect age, but like it was it was special and exciting. And, um, and the Boston music scene was great. Um, I mean, (laughs) and you know, like you and I, like part of what we shared there is that we recognized a really special performer or yeah. like really right away and so early in their careers and just wanted to be a part of it. Like, like really wanted them to be heard and seen. Yes. And, and we're down to do whatever, um, to take on whatever role was needed in order to make that happen. And I'm sure that you and I did so much that like, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing probably. No, not at all. Yeah. But clearly we didn't do that bad a job. <laughs> no, I mean, your, your path completely worked out. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- there's so many parallels. It's like, even it's like this artist played my school. I introduced myself oh, to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, Absolutely. I love it. Do you remember meeting me? Do you remember meeting you? Because I remember that clearly. Yeah, we we met at the Emerson campus. I was visiting my friend Elise Lociavo. Hi, Elise. Um, she was managing an artist named Ann Heaton at the time, and so I don't know why we like went to like the computer. Was it like in the computer lab or something? Do you remember? Well, it's funny because I thought it was at Northeastern. I don't know. I thought it was at my university. I don't know what I would have been doing at Emerson. My apologies. Sorry, Boston. I accidentally said Emerson. I meant Northeastern. Okay, cool. That makes me feel better. I was like, oh, what was I doing at Emerson? No, 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 no. We were both at Northeastern. My bad. (laughs) Yeah, all good. Um, Well, I just remember meeting you, and I don't know. I think you said it first. So did you graduate college in 2005? Because yes. I think, it was, yeah, okay, same. And so I remember you be, I don't know, we were introduced and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm about to graduate from Berkeley and I'm going to work full time at Kill Rockstars and I help an artist named St. Vincent. And I was like, I was like, I work with a band called the Dresden Dolls and I'm a senior and I'm going to work with, um, work at a company called Mattis Nest. And I literally said to you, like, we should be friends. Like, I just, yeah. I I like said it very just like, like, no, this is a factual statement. Um, I just could like, I was so impressed with what you were doing. I could feel your energy and I just totally got it. So I will never, I will never forget that. Absolutely. And same thing. It was just so clear that like, oh, we're on, like, we're on the same path and like, we're going to get each other in a way that will be hard for other people to get. And like, yeah. And here we are all these years later and yeah, I mean, you, you've been such an ally to me personally and professionally. And I love that we've stuck with each other and by each other and supported each other from day one. And look at us now, like actual grownups. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's such a great point too. Like you don't always need to be like meeting and befriending 
the old school people, like that's great too. 100%. You know, I mean, again, like I said, like Carrie Druton, who from NBC, who had been in the game for a while, like it was so helpful for me to meet her. It was equally just as helpful in my career to have met you, Emily, at the time that I did, because we came up together. And, you know, when people are wanting to meet music supervisors and stuff now, it's like, don't forget the music coordinators. Yes. They are going to be music supervisors themselves in a year or five. So like, you're going to want to know them too. Just like when you're in college, get to know the people at your college radio station, go work at your college radio station, be an MD, be a DJ, whatever, because those are the people who are going to be entering the music industry. Those are going to be your biggest fans. They're going to be your colleagues. They're going to be your allies. Like go befriend them, go be part of their scene because they are part of your scene and they will be for years and years to come. Yeah. And also just, I mean, it's way easier said than done, but also just don't be shy. You know what I mean? It's like, people are probably blown away by your story and everything you just said, but it's like, oh, you, you were blown away by this artist. So you went up to, you know, from this vantage point, it's just like, oh my gosh, like you managed St. Vincent, like in the early days, that's so cool, blah, blah. But you're just like, oh, I was blown away by this artist. I, I just, you were compelled to help. You went to the same school. And so you introduced yourself at a party. And so especially now in in COVID world when, you know, everything's changing and different for students and stuff like that. Just, you know, I hear from students all the time, like, where do you think areas of growth in the industry will be? Or where should I focus? I'm like, just find an artist you love and ask if they need help because they do. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Yeah. But both with the example of Annie and Kill Rockstars, like I just, Yeah. yeah, I immediately loved what Annie did. And I went up to her and talked to her and we became really close friends and worked together. And then with Kill Rockstars, I knew that I just loved the music that they were doing. And so actually what happened is I went to a gossip show and I saw Beth Ditto and Kathy Mendoza from the band sitting outside on a bench. And I walked up to them and I was like, I'm queer and from the South too. <laughs> and, like, <you> know, <laughs> and so we started talking and then I was asking them about Kill Rockstars and Olympia, Washington. And they were like, oh, you should... Like, you should totally move to Olympia. It's great. Or like, oh, you should hit up Slim. And like, he goes to New York a lot because his lady friend lives there. And so I was like, great. And so I I, email, I cold emailed Slim and was just like, I here's what I'm drawn to. I want, I want to be a part of this. Like, I want to intern for you. Can I like meet up with you in New York during CMJ? And, you know, like, I guess at the time, like there would have, it would have been weird for me to just fly out to Olympia or rather he was, he was not going to hire an intern from across the country sight unseen. Um, sure. Cause bear in mind, this was like 2003 or something yeah. at this point. And so I took the Fung Wa Chinatown bus from Boston to New York and got to meet Slim at the, uh, at the Hilton where the CMJ main stuff was happening. I remember like we were at lunch and I didn't know like if, I was going to have to pay or not. And I was, you know, mm-hmm. a college student. And so I ordered like a tiny, tiny ass cup of chicken noodle soup. <laughs> I don't know. It's so funny that these are the things that one remembers. Oh, he was wearing a shirt that said sassy on it. And when he was like, I'll be wearing a sassy shirt. I was like, what does this mean? And then I was like, oh, sassy the magazine. Got it.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Capital S. Anyway, but like I said, like I feel like I started working for him the moment I met him. Like we then left that lunch and picked up all the artist CMJ bags and then went to uh it was called Trash Bar Lux at the time. I can't remember what the name of that venue was in Brooklyn. And we uh we were there for the Kill Rock Stars showcase that night. And I got to meet all the bands. And I remember he introduced me to Kathy Wilcox, who was playing as part of Casual Dots. She's the bass player for Bikini Kill. And she, uh, excuse me, Slim introduced me to Kathy and said, this is Lauren. She interns for us. And I looked at him and I was like, you mean I got the internship? I was so excited. And I wish I could find, there's a photo of me and Kathy Wilcox from that moment and my face is squished up against hers like my cheek is just like to the bone with hers and I have the biggest smile on my face because I had just found out that like you know me taking the bus down to New York and like hustling to do whatever needed to be done at that showcase right there landed me that internship and that I mean that started me down everything just like when Annie said like yeah let's let's do this all of those things opened all the doors that I didn't even know I wanted to walk through, but there I did. And it was, it was just the most exciting thing. And it's really fun talking about that right now and remembering, remembering how it felt like you should feel that excited. If you're going to bother working in music, you should feel this excited. Like if you want to be managing an artist, you should be obsessed with what they're doing enough that you're like, Oh my God, I need to find that person and be doing something with them. If you want to work at a label, you need to be so stoked about what they're doing that, like, you want to be a part of it. It's the best feel. I'm like, I also am down memory lane with you. Like, I remember that moment for me, even though I'm going to, like, kind of mess it up. But I I remember that feeling. Like, I got, because my dream was to work in London because I was obsessed with Britpop. And so I got an internship at MTV in the UK and I found that out, like, the same day I found out, like, the Dresden Dolls were going on. I, I mean, was it the Nine Inch Nails tour? I don't know. But I found out, like, two things in one day, and I was able to do both of them, and it was both working out, and it was just, like, the best feeling. I, t- I totally understand what you're talking about. Yes. Um, also, side note, Chinatown Bus um, is the, you know, boulevard of dreams between Boston and New York, you know, for 10 bucks. I know there's, like, Bolt and better things now but I mean I used to take the Chinatown bus between Boston and New York for internship interviews in the same day to save money so oh absolutely I I remember taking it down to see shows like I I distinctly remember getting to see Electrolane in Boston and just being like I want to experience that again and I got on the bus and funny enough also you know got off the bus in Chinatown, walked over again to 74 Leonard Street <laughs> to the knitting yeah, factory exactly. and saw Lane play again. It was just like, oh, that's like the greatest thing in the world. Then I could hop back on the bus and four hours later, um, you know, arrive in Boston again and figure, find my way back to Jamaica Plain or wherever I was living at the time. 
Coming down for shows, I remember that. I even met a really good friend on the Chinatown bus. He was in a local Boston band, and I knew nice. that. So I introduced myself to him, and he was like, oh, want to sit here? And so we talked for, like, four hours, and I, his um, his partner is an artist. I ended up helping her. Like, so, yeah, lots of love for the Chinatown bus. I wonder if there's any sort of – if there's anything to be said about the fact that we were kind of coming up in that era before social media and yeah. – people playing on their cell phones and the bus like if you were sitting on the bus you weren't really doing anything like if someone wanted to talk to you you were probably available like unless you were like you know reading a book and like had a I don't know just like because you wouldn't have really had headphones on I guess you could have been listening to this man or something but generally people were approachable and yeah yeah, like I I think that we were really lucky that like because I still identify as an introvert but for some reason I really love strangers and like feel very comfortable talking to them yeah and so yeah like the fact that you were down to talk to someone on a bus the fact that I was down to go introduce myself at a party or cold email someone or go talk to a band who was sitting on a bench outside and not just be like oh my god that's Beth Ditto that's a gossip like, <laughs> I would, like connect yeah it's it's such a good point I could talk all day about that but we need to dig into the... Oh, my God. Sorry, sorry. Yes. No, don't apologize. I want to talk to you all day about running into Mike Orr on the bus. And yes. now, now he, like, tours with Smashing Pumpkins. And and he, like, came out with us that night in New York. I, I'm so with you on the social media thing because it's like he probably would have had other plans or whatever. But anyway. Um, okay. So I remember meeting with you a few years later. You were at Kill Rock Stars and you were in New York and I was working. I mean, you were in town. And I was uh, working at Madison House and you were like, yeah, I just landed, you know, so-and-so like a 30 grand juice placement in the UK. And I was like, gosh, when can you start doing this um, for my artists? So yeah. So how long were you at Kill Rockstars and how did that evolve into uh, working at Terror Bird? Yeah. So it was in, let's see. So I graduated in 2005 for my internship. Like I had met, I had met that crew in 2003, started my internship in 2004 then went back to Boston, graduated in 2005, and then right after graduating, started working for Kill Rock Stars uh, full time. And I was there until 2009. In the spring of 2009, I moved over to Terrorbird to start their in-house. Um, I don't even know why I'm saying in-house, but to start their licensing department. And Terrorbird was um, a music marketing company that I was already super tight with. They did a lot of radio promo for Kill Rock Stars, so there was. There was even um, there was even like a cross company relationship that was already going on. Terrorbird was already repping Kill Rock Stars in several ways, right? Um, and then uh, I think it's okay for me to say this. Eventually, so my boss Slim uh, then introduced me to Jess from Terrorbird, who. I guess it was actually before she was at Terrorbird. But anyway, uh, Jess and I ended up dating <laughs> for six years. Um, and so I was, and I, I, Jess is my best friend. We, she owns Terrorbird. We work yeah. together. Um, we just happened to accidentally live together for like a long time. Anyway, totally. um, but like we always worked well together. And so when she launched Terrorbird, you know, I was there supporting her. Um, as a person, but I was still at Kill Rockstars for several years. She started Terrorbird in 2006. And so then it wasn't until 2009 that then it just made so much sense that like, 
you know, I had spent those years building up all of these contacts and relationships. And I got to the point where I had these, um, these genuine connections where music supervisors were coming to me with all the projects that they were working and what they needed. And, you know, for as deep and varied as the rock stars and five RC catalogs were, I certainly didn't have everything that everyone needed for all their projects. And so it made sense to expand the catalog that I was representing and be able to have more music to offer people depending yeah. on what, what project they're working on. And Kill Rockstars was incredibly supportive. Um, I remember being so scared to like send that email, like proposing this idea of like, what if I move over to Terrorbird and bring Kill Rockstars as a client? And Portia Sabin from Kill Rockstars at the time wrote back to me within like 30 minutes and was like, great idea. And I was like, so relieved. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then it all grew from there because Terrorbird was already doing radio promo and PR and at, at the time, which was uh, more what was known as new media <laughs> at the time um, with like blog stuff. Yeah. Um, they already had a client base. They already had all these other labels who they were working with and who trusted them. And so when I launched the Terrorbird sync licensing department, out of the gate, I had like 10 labels that were on my yeah. roster. So I was really in a super fortunate position where I was able to build my reputation while coming um, from in-house at a label that was, you know, small but respected and mm -hmm. known, and then move over to somewhere where then my roster could expand tenfold instantly. Um, cause, because these labels loved and trusted Terrorbird. And a lot of them also knew me and knew that I came from the same, um, you know, indie perspective and uh, had that ethos that, that they were a part of as well. And I was, I was from their world. And so people trusted me. And uh, so, yeah, I was really in a, in a very, I didn't realize what a fortunate position I was in really until years later when things truly exploded and I like within the sync world. And I realized how incredibly fortunate I was to have gotten into that field when I did like before, right. before there was that feeling of like kind of gold rush era, like everyone is now starting a sync company or everyone mm -hmm. is like, getting into this. Like, I mean, I wouldn't try to start a sync company now. Right. Um, like, <laughs> But but thank God I don't have to because I did 15 years ago. <laughs> and yeah, like because I've been in it for this long, it's fine. I, like I I was very fortunate to have been able to get established before um, before the field got kind of overcrowded. Yeah, but it you know you're also a part of the boom, you know, and like your unique perspective, um, you know, from being you know. This might sound weird, not just being a musician, but being a musician as long as you've been a musician, you know, like it is an extremely, you know, sync is an extremely creative part of the field and people don't always understand that. So I was so excited, you know, when you launched that division at Terraberg. So I was like, yeah, Lauren can work with my artists now because that's what I'd wanted, you know, for so Ooh. many years. I, I knew you'd been crushing it at, at Kill Rockstars. And there's so many reasons I respect you. Um, but one in particular with with sync stuff and I I explain this to artists all the time and use, use you as an example, like great sync people like yourself know what can be placed and know what 
you know, is really going to have, is not going to be placed or, you know, is, is less likely to be placed. And that's not a reflection on the music, you know, like I remember I sent you, um, a band called gold motel and you've probably heard me tell this story before. And you wrote back, you know, like a few weeks later or something and you're like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm just listening to this now, which I'm like, you're super busy. <laughs> no worries. And you're like, I can, I can crush it with this. Or like, you just, you were so enthusiastic. You're like, this is great. Let, let me do my thing with this. And then, you know, I remember, um, I won't say the company, they're a totally respected company, but the company that the Dresden Dolls label had working them to sync um, would say to me, like, music supervisors love them. They want to be on the guest list. They're fans, but the music stands out too much. It's not very placeable. And so that feedback from, I mean, that feedback wasn't from you, but the, the feedback on Gold Motel, it's like, that's super helpful, you know? And there's artists, I'm sure this has happened to you a million times, where there's artists that you love you know, that you believe in so much and that you're a fan of, but if it's, you know, like noise rock or something, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like it, it might not always fit to picture. So yeah. So tell us about your time at, at Terrorbird and, and some of those experiences. Yeah. I mean, first off, I just have to comment on your example. Like, you know, if it's noise rock, blah, 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 because like, you know, if you do need noise rock, we probably are still going to be your best source right. for, yeah. uh, for noise bands and like all the weird shit. In fact, I remember getting... Um, a search once from PJ Bloom and his search said like, send me your weirdest stuff. And I had to just pick up the call or pick up the phone and be like, how weird are we talking? Like, if do you mean like weird to a normal person <laughs> or yeah. do you mean like actually weird? Cause like, those are two different things. Um, anyway, sorry. That was just, I should have said That's experimental so noise rock. That's what I was thinking. Oh, so, but no, you, you get it. No, because like, but you're, you're bringing up such a great point, which is that, you know, it doesn't always make sense to work with every artist who you're a personal fan of. Right. And at the same time, you can work with people, even if you think that, you know, that what you'll be able to do for them is, or do with them is, limited like there have been instances where there's a band that like oh my god we love this but like we we won't be able to do anything with it so like we're gonna pass and not take it on but we genuinely love you and then there's other times too where it'll be like oh my god we love you and this is very niche and like just letting you know like there's not going to be a lot of instances where the need for your music is going to arise but when someone does need like the type of music that you're doing, your music will be perfect for it. And when there's a project that needs something like this, we want to be the people pitching this. Or it might even be like, we know that this isn't going to come up, but we know that if a music supervisor is in need of this, we're probably going to be the place that they hit up asking for it. And so it might be like, there might not be a lot of opportunity here, but we, but we still think that when the opportunities do come, that will be your best bet for actually getting pitched for it. Because I love it. Because people know to come to us for that stuff. Exactly. Um, I mean, just like, you know, I, I think that when when people need feminist punk rock, they know to come to Terrorbird. <laughs> you oh, know, there's, there's certain things that different companies are known for. And, and I don't think that any one company is known for really for like one specific thing, but there might be areas of focus within a company's catalog and 
different companies are going to, now I'm just kind of really going off on another thing, but different companies are going to have different approaches to how they view curating their own rosters. There are some people who are going to just want a lot of variety and want to have a bunch of different kinds of music. There's some people who are going to want to, um, you know, specialize more in certain types of music. Some people have the attitude that like, well, I don't want to sign too many bands like that sounds like such and such because then they'll kind of be cannibalizing each other. And then others have the approach of like, no, no, no. I want like everything that I can get in this genre because I want to be known as a place that people come when they need that. Mm-hmm. So but, uh, I can't remember what the question was, but I'm sure. That I don't even know if they're, well, it was, it was more, well, here's a similar question. Um, sync is super creative. And so what have been, this is a two-part question. Like what, what have been some of the most meaningful placements to you that you've made? And also what was it like working with um, Elliot Smith's catalog and, and family and estate? Cause that oh, music. Yeah. Was so, um, I mean, I, sorry, but like, I'm sure you've heard this a million times. It's like, I remember seeing Goodwill hunting in the theater in high school and just being like, what is this music? You know? So the first time I was introduced to Elliot's music was through sync. Yeah. And you know, so I can't take credit for like, that was before my time. You're a teenager. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't repping him at the time, but actually I, something that I will say about, um, Elliot and I think the power of music and connection is that actually when when I first met Slim like at that CMJ of 2003 it was very shortly after uh, Elliot's death yeah and so like that was you know that was all still very raw for everyone and you know I remember that being one of the things that I talked to Slim about early on connected with because like, I mean, it also felt powerful to, to be with someone who knew him. I didn't, I never got to meet him while he was alive. Yeah. Um, And so getting to then know his family and and even his legal team over the years um, who manages the state has been, it's been really meaningful because his music uh, does mean a lot to me as as a person, as a listener. And so being able to kind of be like a steward of, of the legacy of that music is, it's meaningful. It's really yeah. meaningful. And I, I love when we get to find good placements for his music. Um, I love when his mom is like, oh, that scene sounds so sweet. <laughs> like, let's do it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I love the fact that I have an actual relationship and friendship with his sister, Ashley, and have gotten to work with her on a bunch of things over the years. And it's, yeah, there's something really, really special about working with music that that means something to you, where it's not just a business transaction and you, you care about the role that the music is playing um, in wherever you're syncing it to. And, and it's important to you. Like it, it just makes everything so much more meaningful. And, you know, I can, I can equally remember the placements that didn't go final for yeah. Elliot like just as strongly as I remember the ones that did. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there may have been instances where then someone on the film team was like, 
oh, you know, I, I, I remember one in particular where it's like, oh my God, this is going to be so powerful. But then someone on the film's team was like, I think having Elliot's music here is like a little too expected. So we're going to do something mm. else. And later when I saw the film, I saw the scene that it would have been in. And I was just like, oh my God, this like, oh, it's like so painful how well that yeah. song went here. And like how, just how, with something like that, with legacy artists like that, and actually like, I kind of feel similarly to Kathleen Hanna's catalog with the mm-hmm. Bikini Kill and Latigra stuff. I mean, Bikini Kill is now an active band again, but when they weren't, even though all the band members were still here, like I still, you know, I treated that catalog as legacy catalog. And just like with Elliot, like I really cared about where it ended up. And I was so passionate about wanting new people to hear the music. So just like with Elliot's, like I, you know, a lot of people already knew Elliot's music, but I wanted them to remember it. I wanted them to be like, oh yeah, this song, let me go like throw on either or again and listen to it. And I wanted mm-hmm. new people who hadn't been exposed to his music to get to hear it again. And actually I remember a meaningful one um, on that specific tip was there was an Elliot Smith placement for the song, whatever folk song in C. Mm-hmm. In, in a scene in Gossip Girl, which, you know, at the, when Gossip Girl was on, like, that was a very big deal. And it was a young I have seen movie. every episode of Gossip Girl multiple times, so you do not need to justify oh, it. Oh, okay, great, great, great. Yeah, so it was when um, Serena and Penn Bagley's characters. Dan, Dan. Dan. Yeah, they were, like, in bed together for, like, the first time, and they had vinyl playing, and then it was, like, skipping and he had to kind of like nudge it with his foot. And so like, oh, yeah. And like, that was such a special placement on multiple levels because yeah. number one, like it was a special scene and the music was in there and it was just so sweet. And then also the fact that the character was interacting with the music in that way, like yeah. the, the music editor had like, you know, altered the music so it sounded like it was skipping. <laughs> like it actually oh. was a vinyl record that was like, you know, stuck on a loop and so the fact that then like the character is like kind of like kicking the record player a little bit to get it to keep going like there's something really cool about that um that where the music is not just playing a role for the audience but is also playing a role for the characters like that absolutely yeah it's like I love I love moments like that when the music is actually in the show and not to mention, which I, I'm sure everyone was thrilled about, hopefully exposing Elliot's music to an, a new audience, even though there were way too many people in their 20s and 30s watching that show. <laughs> but yeah, but there were teenagers too, and they got to hear Elliot's music likely for the first time a lot exactly. of the show. So yeah, things like that are really special. Um, yeah, I, landing Bikini Kill Rebel Girl onto, this is an older one too, but landing them onto the actual game disc of uh, Rock Band 2 video game, that was a huge win. And that was one that like, like typically when I'm pitching music, I don't have to like, you know, write a dissertation about like why someone should consider this song. But for that one, I kind of did. Like I basically ended up like writing an essay um, because they were considering several songs that, uh, that I was repping and I basically wrote them an essay explaining the importance and impact and meaning behind Rebel Girl and like how much it would mean and do to include a song like that 
on the actual game disc. So it's like, okay, you're considering these songs for possible use just in the like kind of cloud version of things versus which ones will actually be on the game disc. If you're only going to pick one of these, let it be Rebel Girl and here's why. Here's why it matters on more than just a musical level. Here's why it matters from more of like a societal level. (laughs) And they ended up including it on the game disc. And I... Yeah, I don't know how many people are still playing Rock Band 2. Oh, but it was so huge. Yeah, It was huge. It was huge at the time. And yeah, I mean, maybe I could be picking a a less dated... No, I I totally... Well, I get it. (laughs) And and, and listeners got it too. And Yeah. um, I mean, here, I'll just give like one slightly... I mean, but but a little bit more recent one that was also... uh, It was with a a Latigra song called Hot Topic. And for those unfamiliar with the song, um, one of the hugest... uh, kind of components of the song is that the verses include um, just like a list of really awesome feminist icons. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, be it musicians or activists, whatever it may be. And there is a Kohl's commercial that ended up using it. And, you know, they were just using the chorus, like just like the catchy, like hot topic is the way that we run. Okay. Um, don't worry about licensing that. I can give it to you gratis. Amazing. Um, But like, I loved the idea that like, oh my God, super mainstream, normal people are going to be like, ooh, cool, catchy song. Let me go look that up. And then are like accidentally going to get exposed to like important feminist ideas. (laughs) I loved that. Like I got so much joy from what I kind of referred to as like tricking the mainstream into listening to like political or feminist or queer music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I loved that. I still love it. And now it's kind of shifted a little bit because, you know, there's different, um, there's different emphasis on like what kind of media is out there now and like who's getting heard and what stories are being told. And one that's of close, uh, close to heart for me is LGBTQ representation and something, you know, as we're, I don't know when this episode is going to air, but I'll just say in general, June comes every year and yeah. every year um, brands in particular put more and more attention onto being a part of pride month and mm-hmm. wanting to like prove that they're down um, yeah. in ways that they did not uh care to show before I could talk for an hour about this phenomenon actually yeah oh seriously um but there's more and more of it every year and a big thing for me is like if you're trying to convince a queer audience that they should trust you as a brand please use queer music yeah exactly just like I mean there I mean similar like there have been spots where it's like here's a song about like you know, women's rights and blah, blah, blah. And like, here's this spot showing these amazing female athletes, blah, blah, blah. 
like, yes, I'm a strong believer in like use whatever music is going to serve the spot best, but please make an effort to like, if you can music by a woman in one of those spots or a queer person in one of those spots or a black person in a spot about like, I mean, not that there are any like ads about the BLM movement, but like, you know, but there are, you know, like, I, I mean, a lot of, you know, companies and corporations are incorporating that into their messaging for Actually, sure. Yes, you're right. In that level, they are. And so, like, make an effort. Like, yes, of course, like, make the spot be as powerful as you can be so that the message goes far. But make an effort. If you can be using music from the scene that you're supposedly trying to lift up, like, just make the effort. Try to, yeah. try to use a musician from that scene, too. A hundred percent. Okay, so let's dig in on how to land a sync placement, um, which, as I mentioned, is an article that I wrote in 2014 that sounds clickbaity, but um, I still get emails about it, and it's essentially the second half of Chapter 5 of this book. Um, So obviously, we can't guarantee that you get a sync placement, but we want to help you put yourself in the best possible position. And again, don't be offended if your music is to, for lack of a better word, like quirky, stands out, whatever. I mean, there's tons of huge artists that um, don't land a lot of placements. So, um, okay. So if I'm an artist and I want to get into sync world, where do I begin? Because like you said, there's so many sync companies. Um, You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, because I'm sure artists are very overwhelmed by that. Uh, that they're that they're overwhelmed by figuring out like who should rep my music exactly or- because well because again it's like there's you know catalogs and music libraries anyone can sign up for there's more mm-hmm. selective companies like Terrorbird there's obviously you know traditional publishers Terrorbird does you know admin publishing deals as well and I've broken yeah. down a lot of the basics on this so it's just like what you know there, like I said there's options anyone can join and then there's other options so where where should an artist begin. You know, I think that I would ask myself the question, where do I want my music to be? Yeah. Um, you know, like what are you, are you wanting? Yeah. Like where are you wanting your music to be and why? Um, because you've got to then be real with yourself about like whether your music actually would fit the places that you want. Like just because you have a favorite TV show doesn't mean that your music's going to work in it. Um, Similarly, like, I guess I'm thinking about kind of the different uses of Mm -hmm. things. Like, sometimes it is a little bit more um, kind of utilitarian. Like, some music is used just because, like, there needs to be a music bed in this thing, and we don't really care what it is. And then there's other times where, like, the music is truly helping to tell the story of this thing that's going to be on the big screen. So, like, are you looking just to, like, make some money? and don't really care where the music ends up. If that's the case, then, you know, exploring a library type thing might be an okay option if you don't mind, like if if you're not so concerned about, if you're not precious about where the music ends up or frankly, like how much you're being paid for it. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's a little hard for me. It's a, it's that, that kind of approach is, outside of my wheelhouse yeah so much. um as far though as like you know if like if we're talking more about music that's like I've released an album and these are like song songs and I want them to be heard by the world and end up in tv shows that 
my cousins watch, then mm -hmm. go really look at what music those shows are using. Um, yeah. Song Find is a good resource for seeing what songs end up in shows. And then mm -hmm. you, you can do some research to figure out, well, who's repping those people? Because whoever those people are clearly have some sort of relationship with whoever's music supervising this show. Um, you can then, oh God, there's so many things I want to say. I can feel myself being about <laughs> to skip all over the place. Um, you want to be represented by people who you want representing your music. Yeah. Um, whether that means like, I want the people who are going to, like some people are just like, I want the people who like are going to charge the highest fees or like, I want the people who are going to find the obscure uses or just like, I want to focus on commercials because that's where I see my music fitting in. When we're considering taking on an artist, we're looking at their music and them as a person and who their team is. We might love the music, but if if we get the vibe that the team is going to be impossible to work with, yeah. we're not going to take it on because it's not worth our happiness and well-being yes. <laughs> to rep anyone. That was something that we determined years ago. Um, Terrorbird has an official, quote unquote, no assholes policy. Totally. If, if a manager or a label is an asshole, we don't want to work with them. Like, no matter how good the music is, no matter even like how much money we could potentially be making from their catalog. Like one of my litmus tests is if you can see the person calling and you don't want to answer the phone, you probably shouldn't work with that person. Yeah. A hundred percent. Then like maybe y'all shouldn't be working together and that's okay. So yeah. yeah, we're so I guess that to say like, we are very selective about who we rep, not just musically, but also like, how it seems like you're going to be to work with. Like, are you going to, are you going to be someone who we love talking to? Um, Cause that would be better. That would be a lot yeah. more enjoyable for all of us. Um, and then certainly the music, we have to connect with it in some way. And we have to feel like we'll be able to do something with it. Cause we also don't want to take on someone whose music we love and then, you know, feel like we're letting them down. If we're like, Hey, there really weren't that many projects to pitch you for over these few months because there just wasn't anything that was looking for that. I mean, of course, like open, honest communication is important and people will be understanding. Um, and if they're not, then again, you should ditch them. Um, but you know, you're, you're wanting your clients to be happy. You're wanting to find opportunities for people. And so, so there's that balance of like, I'll say this: something that we tend to gauge things on in terms of like, are we finding opportunities for this is not so much are, are things landing? We're looking for like, did we find places to pitch it? Cause if we're finding places to pitch it, then we know that it's about a, like a bunch of stars that have to align before something actually goes final. If we're not finding places to pitch your music, that's a little bit more of a concern. So when we're listening to music that gets submitted to us for consideration, um, we don't think of it from the perspective of like, could this land in such and such? We're thinking like, have there been searches recently that we would have pitched this for? Like, was there something yesterday that it's like, oh, if I had had this, I would have totally included it in this pitch. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. And that's something where we're going to be more inclined to, to take it on. Similarly, 
we're going to be looking at what tools and assets an artist has specifically like, you know, it, does the music sound great? Do they have instrumentals? Are those instrumentals mastered? Are there samples in every song <laughs> or is it all sample free? Or if there is a sample, did they also make a version that is sample free? Do they have cleans available? Those kinds of things can, can really help because sometimes there might be something that sounds really great, but like maybe it was recorded live and that led to a great listener experience for just a fan, but is going to limit what we're going to be able to do with it for licensing because we don't have instrumental versions. And to explain um, for a second why instrumental versions are so important, there's a lot of searches, especially for ads, where they're looking for music that doesn't have vocals at all. Um, and so we, like, we do pitch a lot of straight up instrumental tracks. The other thing is that there's tons of opportunities where there might be a scene that where like there's a lot of dialogue going on for a moment. And so right. the music editor is going to want to use the instrumental version during that section and then switch to the vocal version once those characters stop talking and we can actually hear the relevant lyrics that are going on. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to have that flexibility. And because of that kind of reason, specifically, the idea of like kind of toggling between the instrumental and vocal version, it's really important that you get the instrumentals mastered. This yeah. is something that a lot of people don't bother doing. And it's, I think it's a lot more important than people realize. And I would also emphasize, get it mastered at the same time that you get the rest mastered because you want, you want to be able to like the test for yourself should be like, can I toggle between these? And it sounds normal that it doesn't sound like, Oh, we've just switched to the instrumental or we've just switched to the vocal. Like that one of them clearly has, um, you know, a stronger sonic um, vibe going on than like this other one that is clearly unmastered or just wasn't mastered by the same person. Um, yeah, a lot of people don't want to make that investment, so to speak, up front. And if you can afford to have them mastered at the same time, please do it. Absolutely. And, um, you know, just to recap on assets, please tell me if I'm wrong. Um, you know, we always deliver, you know, clean versions of wave files of, um, the songs. Um, we used to do high quality MP3s too, cause they're a little smaller. Um, and then a Spotify link for ease of listening, um, the exact same wave files and high quality MP3s of the instrumentals. Um, and we always do a PDF of the lyrics because we want to make your job as easy as possible. And this is why we enjoy working with organized people like you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that um, when we are delivered waves, we immediately convert them to AFF and throw them away. Like we, okay, good to know. yeah, we, I'm, I'm very, I'm a very huge proponent of like AIFFs, not waves. And the reason for that is that AIFFs retain metadata, waves do not. Such a good point. And your metadata is your best friend. Whether you are a pitch company or the artist, whoever you are, that metadata is so critical. And if you're giving someone a WAV file, all it is is a file name. You don't have access to the artist name or whatever info the person who pitched it would have had in the comments field or the grouping field. So yeah, WAVs are a bummer to me. Um, yeah. Anyway, as so when you're talking about those assets, let's 
just talk for a second between the difference between what you might send when submitting your music mm-hmm. to be considered by a company versus what the company then needs once they take you on. Yeah. For a for someone to consider you, they're probably just going to want a streaming link. Um, you know, like they'll need, like we'll of course need the high res files of like the album version and the instrumentals and all that afterwards. But when you're submitting, and I'm, I'm sure that you've talked about this ad nauseum and other things, like please use a streaming link. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I don't think that people really use attachments so much anymore. That used to be a, a bigger issue. They still do. Um, do they? <laughs> yeah. I, cause people don't know. And that, I mean, literally like my first book is interning 101 and I have a whole section on file formats. People just, we're not taught this. And what you just said about, you know, different file formats and metadata, like music business educators, myself included, take note of that. People just don't know that, you know? Yeah, you're right. Cause I mean, why would anyone know that? Well, we should though. I mean, it's, it's super important. Fair. <laughs> yeah. So do streaming links. I would also say that like a waste of a submission email is one that says, can I send you music? Totally. Like, don't, yeah. don't bother asking if you can send it. If you're just giving someone a link. Exactly. Then, then you're good. They, like, can, they can listen or delete the email as easily, <laughs> as easy, you know, easily either way. So just include absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, you know, thanks to archives, even if they delete it, they still might be able to find it exactly. one day if you included the right kind of language in your email so that when they're looking for certain things that it might pop up in their email. I've had a lot of music supervisors um, say that they, they use their, they treat their inbox like Google, that like, that's where they're searching for music. It's like, yeah. That, so it's so important for your emails to like, I'm not saying like make them like wildly verbose, but they should have the words that you would want someone to be able to find your email if they used a search criteria. So like if, if you're like, I want someone to find my music if they are looking for like Americana, like dark Americana that I don't know why I can't think of a single thing right now that has lap <laughs> steel or whatever, yeah. you know, like if they might have a show that, you know, is a swampy dark vibe or whatever, then like use some of those words in your email that's describing your music so that when they're looking for that, you pop up. Yep. That's like, you know, whenever we send emails to people, like if we're sending out a sampler or a new album or something, we're including a description of the music because we want people to know what in the world it is. And believe it or not, I still sometimes receive emails from music supervisors where they forward me or reply to an email that I sent to them 10 years ago. (laughs) Seriously. Be like, Hey, do you still rep this (laughs) or whatever? And it's because like, they were not just scrolling through their emails from them. They clearly typed something into the search field of their email to find either that artist name or something that I had had in the description of it that popped up. So like, you want to be accurate. You want to be helpful. In, in the same way that I was talking about seeing music supervisors as your clients as well, you're trying to help them. Like they're doing a really hard job and you want to do whatever you can to help make their job as easy as possible. You want them to have the info of like, you know, give me a sense of what I'm about to be listening to before I even click on this. 
give me a link that's not going to expire because it might take me a month or five years to actually get to this. Literally. So don't do expiring links. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like put yourself in the best situation to be found and seen, um, even if it's by sending the email and even if the person doesn't get back to you, the fun thing is that if they search for the right things in their inbox, you still may pop up alongside, um, you know, the big names. That's such a good point. Um, how should people handle co-writes to make your, or any music supervisor, sync person, um, to make their lives easier? Uh, know what they are, yeah. <laughs> have it, you know, make sure that they equal a hundred percent. Amazing. Um, I, know, I mean, it seems evident, but yeah, something that will also be important to us when we're considering taking on a client is like, what are the writer pub splits? Like, are there, does the, does this artist control a hundred percent of publishing? Are there co-writes? Are all of those co-writes with different publishers? Are they with five different publishers on one single track? Like, what will the clearance thing be like? Because we're yeah. not, we're not just pitching based on creative. We are pitching based on clearance as well. Mm-hmm. And so if there's, if there's a project where like, we're kind of taking their time, like maybe we're just gathering up music for this upcoming season. We haven't even started shooting. Just want to have a batch of music to go through. Okay. Then I'm a little bit less concerned with like, will this song be quickly clearable or is it with a publisher who's, you know, a little less quick um, in clearances, I'll be less concerned about that. If it's for an ad that ships out next Tuesday, I'm not going to be pitching things that are going to be difficult to clear or that have a bunch of different parties. I'm going to be pitching uh, what's known as one stops, meaning that the person pitching it can clear both 100% of master and 100% of the sync side to publishing. So those things are going to be factors. When we're taking something on, one of our first questions is who controls the rights to this? Yeah. Who controls the master rights? Who controls the publishing? What about for each song? Like, is it different for each song? We need to know that before we take you on because we need to know that when we pitch the music. Something that we're very big about is we want music supervisors to know the clearance info when we pitch them yes. the music, like not later. And so when we send our pitches, we include, you know, like everything's a one stop unless otherwise noted. And we'll say like, hey, publishing on this one is with so-and-so or master is cleared through such and such um, because that matters. Because some, I mean, even if it means that sometimes a music supervisor is going to be like, okay, well, I'm going to skip that one because I know that like, I don't have time to deal with that party right now. Like, yeah, that's a bummer that then that song wasn't considered, but we did our music supervisor a favor by letting them know that up front. And that means once again, like a feather in our cap of, um, I think I just screwed myself with this analogy already. (laughs) Let me go back there. But like, that's already, even that is helpful in our relationship with that music supervisor because they know that we care about their time and happiness and well-being and their ability to do their job. And so even if us putting in some publishing info is going to take a song out of consideration, they might even just skip it and not even listen to it. That sucks, but we've done them a favor and they're going to keep coming back to us when they've got other searches. 
That's right. So, you know, it's our job as artists, artist managers, label people to make your job as a sync pitching person as easy as possible with assets and accurate information. And you're trying to make the music supervisor's job as easy as possible, which is a good thing to do for many reasons. But like you referenced, it can also be time constraints. It's just like, oh, this at, you know, this is this deadline is in 12 hours or 24 hours or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's not that you're not fighting as hard as you can for your artists. In fact, you actually are because you're maintaining and building that relationship for them and, and all the artists you work with in the future. Yeah. And, you know, for us, like, I know that there's other uh, segments of the industry where like, if an artist is being pitched to them, they want to see like, you know, how many followers do they have and have they already built up this side of their business and blah, 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 blah. For us, it's, do you have these assets that we need? Like, do you, like, if we ask you for lyrics, can you give them to us right now before we pitch this music versus like taking forever to send to them to us and making us kind of guess what you're saying. Um, are you going to actually have good sounding instrumentals right away? That's really? the stuff that we care about because that's the stuff that our clients, music supervisors care about. Occasionally, it's not that often that, that an artist will need to be like, household name recognized or like, you know, be justifiably proven as like an up and coming person. Something that I love so much about sync is that the vast majority of the time, it's just about the music. Mm -hmm. It is about, is this song the best vehicle for, for this scene? Um, is this going to tell the story that we want? Is this going to paint the picture that we want? Is this going to let us is this going to let the audience know what time period we're in right away? You know, all of those things, like the, the music truly is the most important part of the picture and less so about who made it. Totally. Which again is why you've been so good at this, both on the pitching side and the supervising side. Um, but that said, you know, I encourage people to mindfully uh, keep their sync person in the loop on latest and greatest highlights, you know, offering you and your team guest lists, offering music supervisors guest lists, you know, in COVID times, guest list codes for webcasts, here's some press hits, like not every day, not on weekends, not on holidays, but, you know, once a month or so, you know, send, send your sync pitching person, um, you know, your latest and greatest highlights, because I want you thinking of our artists. So that's an easy way to remind. And then yeah. if there's like a pitchfork hit or whatever, then you can share that with the music supervisors as well. Now, again, it's going to come down to the music, but um, I don't know. That's what I tell people. You, you, bring up, you bring up a great point because like when there are projects that maybe are specifically looking for, like, let's say that there's an ad agency that hits us up and they're like, hey, this brand really wants to try to break someone or, you know, they're looking for an up and coming thing or like an artist who's relevant in such and such scene. Then it's not just about the music. Like we're pitching music that's going to make sense from artists who also make sense. And so if you can make it as easy as possible for us to then quickly turn around that email to them being like, yep, here's this artist's like stats or like some, you know, high, like career highlights for them or touring highlights or, you know, here's geographically where they're from. Like that happens sometimes. There might be an on-camera opportunity where it's like, hey, we're filming in such and such city or state. Like, do you have anyone located within driving distance of that? Who, like they need to, of course, be a musical fit. But in that case, they also have to be within driving distance of, you know, 
tertiary city USA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so these are the kinds of things that we need to know and keep track of too. So even tell us if you moved, like if you're, if you're not in LA and you're in New York now, let us know that so that we can pitch you as a New York band or if there's something that's filming in New York. If you've got upcoming tour dates, again, a little bit less relevant right now, let us know that because that's going to help us when those certain types of projects do come up. Absolutely. I mean, for that matter, like, you know, even having great photos and album art can be helpful. Again, it's, it's not the most important thing for us. It doesn't always come up. But when it does, if it can help us sell um, you as being the right choice for this project who's looking for someone like you, great. Like, we want it. We we want that asset. Yeah. We want I mean, that pitching you. You're trying to share their, their vision. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, you know, that's where it's, again, important to me, like, in terms of that sharing um, their vision idea, that's, again, where... You know, I don't know if everyone feels as strongly as this, but I do feel um, like you should care who's representing you. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, like who, like who is sharing your music? How are they talking about you? Yes. And that's that's one reason why I think, you know, you working with um, Elliot Smith's family and estate and everything is is so interesting because there's a million ways, you know, one could go with that, but it, you know, it's so sensitive. It's, it's so personal and it's, it's the same for people who are still with us, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's some artists who like, you know, they kind of don't care where their music is. They're going to say yes, no matter what. Yeah. And then there are others where it is more sensitive and where we need to do a lot more homework on our end before even presenting it to the artist or the estate and get a lot more information about like, you know, the exact scene, what's happening right before or after that scene, so that we truly have the context so that, um, you know, our actual clients, the artists or estate or label um, can make an, the most informed decision possible. Definitely. Um, you mentioned before, um, you know, and we've all made mistakes figuring this stuff out as we go. Um, I certainly have a mistake that I made when it came to um, ex- ex- exclusivity, um, having more than one person represent for syncs, which, which I can share, but, um, what, what's a mistake that you've learned from along the way? Oh my God. Um, the, I didn't know that quote requests were binding. Nice. Um, right. at first, <laughs> so I had uh, a circumstance early on where, a project reached out, wanted to use a song. They sent over a quote request. And I was like, yeah, that would uh, that would cost X number of dollars, um, you know, Lauren Ross. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I sent it back, not realizing that what I just sent back was approval. Right. Totally. You know, yeah. there's a difference between someone asking for a ballpark and someone actually asking for an actual quote request. Yep. So um, it turns out, well, here, I'll just, I'll say it. It was for a super small film. Thank God it was for like some super small film that I don't really think uh, saw much daylight, um, but it was for an Elliot Smith song and it was 
I believe for a like a suicide scene. Oh. So obviously something that his family would not totally. have been okay with. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this was when I was brand new. And so I thought what I was being asked was simply, how much would this cost? Right. And I didn't realize that it was a binding thing. And so then they're like, cool, we're using it. Let's put together final paperwork and everything. And yeah, that was that was a huge learning lesson. Quote requests are binding. Definitely. And mine was just that in my younger manager days, you know, there's so many sync companies that will take artists on um, non-exclusively. And I'm, I'm sure there are artists that have fallen into this where it's like, yeah, the more the merrier. But as you know better than anyone, um, the sync community, well, the music industry is small. The sync community is smaller. The music supervisor mm-hmm. community is even smaller. Um, and I had an artist up for like, you know, a, it was like, it was a I'm throwing around 30 grand. That's the second time I've said that, but like, it was like a third grand trailer and, you know, it was a new band and um, we had more than one person pitch and the music supervisor was like, bye, I don't have time to deal with this. So, um, I mean, you might disagree with this in my ideal world. I like when we have one entity pitching on the master side, one pitching on the publishing side, obviously most want to be one-stop shopping, but definitely don't ever go more than two in my experience. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, you know, our favorite is one stops. Um, but if there's if we're pitching just one side and the person on the other side is awesome. Exactly. Great. Yeah. Like, you know, we don't always get that lucky, <laughs> you know, but but that is a factor. Like it even when we're considering taking something on, it's like, OK, we'd be repping one side but so-and-so has the other side. Oh, we love working with them. We know that like we can communicate super well with them. And if we're like, Hey, we pitched this thing for this amount, they'll be like, okay, cool. We're down. And, and things won't be slowed down or stalled or halted. Yep. By and then there's other instances where it's like, Oh, we like really have to put some additional consideration into whether we want to take this on because such and such company is repping the other side and, you know, it, we might hesitate because we know that this company is going to be really slow or we mm-hmm. might hesitate because we're like, like, cool. So we're going to really end up doing all of the work here. Totally. We're just going to pass the money. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and that, that really sucks. I mean, it was a huge reason why we started our publishing company in the first place was because we did see so many instances of like things that were one stops with us. Then someone would go sign a publishing deal and, you know, they were kind of just collecting and not so much creating new opportunities. And so then it was like, cool, we're, we're doing the same amount of work, possibly even more because we now have another step going on here and we're making half the money and maybe even less because sometimes something won't be considered because it's a, not a one-stop depending right. on the time frame for something or because the publisher quoted too high and it went away. There's, there's also, I have just as many success stories with that where it was like, Oh, awesome. Like we were able to land this thing, but the publisher got the fee up or, you know, it happens less, but like, I love when someone else even lands something and maybe we get to be the beneficiary. Sure, yeah. Us, like frustratingly rarely um, co- compared to the other way around, but that's okay. That is how it works. 
Um, yeah. Um, amazing. Well, I'm remembering what the, the actual question was there. Oh, it was just about oh. exclusivity. And, and the only reason I'm able to get away oh, with yeah, that yeah. is what we've been talking about is just relationships. People know that my office is going to get back, you know, within 24 hours. Um, and if you don't want to be chained to your devices, um, we talked in, um, episode two, the forward episode, that's, that's a piece that Zoe Keating has ha- happily given up is, is sync and having someone deal with that for her. So obviously we've talked about, um, deadlines and, and things like that. So that's why I've been able to get, a- get away with that. But you explained why, uh, one shop is appealing for, for many reasons. Yeah. And you brought up a great point of like, there really have been instances where a music supervisor has essentially walked away from a song because they didn't want to have to deal with like what should, you know, what was the timestamp on the email that came in, but did the person send it to me before? Like, they just don't want to deal with that. Like it's, it's awkward and annoying. And if there's another song that works, they'll use that instead. Um, yeah. So I would, I prefer exclusive deals. I recommend them, uh, pretty much except under rare circumstances. Um, exclusive is going to be a better bet. And you said something else just now that made me think of something that has then just left my mind. Um, I do want to say, oh, I know it was about the fact that like, you know, I'm so glad that your listeners are learning all of this stuff. And, you know, I definitely come from that DIY ethos and spirit. And I encourage people to do as to do stuff their self, themselves to the point that makes sense. Like just because you've learned about something doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be the person doing it. You maybe just learned enough so that you make sure that you're hiring the right person to do it or so that you understand, like learn about publishing, maybe not because you need to, maybe you still want to sign with a publisher after learning about it, but you're now going to understand what your publisher is actually doing. You'll know the right questions to ask. So it's still very valuable to learn this stuff, even if you're not going to DIY it. Which is why the full title of chapter five is music publishing isn't scary or confusing, plus how how to land a sync placement. Yes, it's true. It's true. For decades and decades, people have made huge profits off of convincing you that it is scary. It doesn't have to be scary. Yes. We we love when artists understand what's going on. But also like we take pride in the work that we do and we want our artists to know what we're doing for them. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And that's why our previous episode before this um, was music publishing isn't scary or confusing with song trust president, Molly Newman, who I assume, you know, um, of course. So, so it's all a progression. So speaking of you are an artist, how do you find that balance? What are you working on now and where can folks find you? Um, you know, I, I think that being an artist who has a day job has been really beneficial to me as an artist and human being because I I don't have the like business pressure on my music yeah. that that some full art full-time artists do. Like, you know, for my clients, I want them to be able to full-time make music. I I wanna be making them tons of money. Um, for myself, I want to be making the art that I want to make and I want to release it when I feel like it, if I feel like Mm -hmm. it and not be subjected to anyone else's timelines or 
musical tastes or views that that's just for me like i'm yeah i'm not trying to i'm not trying to do my music full time i'm trying to like as far as like that sustainable music career idea on a personal level the sustainability that i'm looking for is to be able to keep making music right and for me part of how i'm able to keep making music and to make the music that i want is by having my day job so that i don't have the financial pressure of my music needing to generate a certain amount of income part of how i'm able to sustain doing music is by not physically injuring my hands which i had done um earlier in life and i, I had to quit playing yeah. for almost 10 years wow. in the middle there because my wrists and thumbs had gotten so messed up. It was really painful mm-hmm. to play. Um, hashtag bassoon really killed my hands. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so for me, um, success in sustainability of my personal music career is simply being able to continue making the music itself. Yep. And so, yeah, my, my artist name is La Luma. Um, I exist on the internet to a degree. Um, so like you can find me there. I, social media is not my thing. I don't spend a lot of time there. I forced myself to like, I hadn't even joined Facebook until releasing my first album a few years ago Mm -hmm. because it never appealed to me. And then I realized, well, that's where people are. So I have to go participate in that. And, uh, I, hated slash hate it. And I've realized that like, that's not part of what brings me happiness in my music making. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't recommend my path for people who are actually <laughs> trying to be full-time musicians. Like don't do what I'm doing. Um, but there's, there's more than one way to treat your music and your music career. And for me, the career part is the day job and the music is my love and my art and you know i have gotten six for it it has made me money um but i'm really fortunate that i don't need it to right did they know you were pitching yourself oh yeah i mean (laughs) let me tell you like that was also very helpful the fact that i had built these genuine relationships with music supervisors over like 12 years or whatever before putting out my first album it meant that when I then was hitting up my friends about my album, my friends were all music supervisors. So like I was sending my music to them and I ended up getting several placements all for different songs from the album. Not because the album is like wildly sync friendly and not because anyone was like doing me any favors by like sneaking a song in somewhere that like it wouldn't have normally fit. But rather I think that the advantage that I had there was that as soon as I sent it out, these music supervisors were like, download. Like they actually grabbed it and they actually listened to it. Totally. Whether they were able to use it or not was a different story, but they were eager and excited to um, to be supportive of my art. And that's because they've had years of knowing me as more than just a colleague, but as a person. I love that. Um, Lauren, thank you so much for your time today and your wisdom and everything that you do for artists. Um, I'm so psyched um, to have had you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I could talk for hours and hours more. Um, Have me back anytime. I love this and I love what you're doing. And I'm so 
happy that you are educating people about all of these chapters of what the music industry is and can look like and how they can fit within it. Oh my gosh, that seriously means the world coming from you. Um, so thank you again. I hope I hope you all enjoyed How to Land a Sync Placement with Lauren Ross. Tune in next week where we're going to talk about setting up your release and distribution plan with Bandcamp founder Ethan Diamond. I'm Emily White, your host, at mwizzle on Twitter and social media. Thanks so much to my engineer, Nathan Kane, Matthew Wong for composing this music. And have a great day, night, uh, wherever you are. We'll see you next week. Thanks again. Thanks again.